Well, welcome everybody once again. We're just so thrilled that you've joined us again for our online gathering today. If we haven't met in like real person, my name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Praxis and I'm just so thrilled again that you're joining in with us. As well, it's Mother's Day and we just wanted to once again, I know we've already said this, but we want to say again to all the moms and all the ladies in our community, just how thankful we are for you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, man, I know it's already been acknowledged, but the ladies, a part of our community, are such a huge part of what happens in our community and the life that you bring. And so we're just so thankful for all of you gals. We pray that you have an amazing day, even though, let's be honest, it's kind of an odd day. Um, this Mother's Day is probably going to be one of the uni- unique ones of our time, just kind of being in isolation. But I hope you can make the best of it and have a great, great day. And we just love you gals so much. With that said, it is the fifth week of Easter. And uh, crazy to think how time flies. I think it's, I woke up this morning, I was was thinking, I think it's week nine of coming to you in this format online. It's hard to believe we're nine weeks into this thing. We're coming to you in what I think the cool kids call 30 frames per second, even though I don't, you know, I don't really know what that means, but kind of crazy to think that we've been online for nine weeks and kind of been in this pandemic for that long. And it's the fifth week of Easter, and we've just been celebrating in a series called Tide. In the church calendar, it's the season of Easter Tide, and so we've been looking at these beautiful stories of how Jesus shows up to people and just changes their lives and meets them in their doubt, in their pain. Uh, we even learned of a, a story of a couple leaving Jerusalem, basically leaving the Jesus movement because they thought he had not risen from the dead, and Jesus has been showing himself to people, and it's been beautiful. Now, it's kind of interesting. We follow the revised common lectionary for our walk through the church calendar the next three weeks have us in first peter and so if you have a bible and you want to join me why don't you open up to first peter with me right now first peter chapter two is where we're going to be so fire on a bible or open it up first peter chapter two Now, before we get there and actually read the text, I think to understand today's text, we have to quickly kind of go back a little bit and tell the story of God and how God was working with people throughout kind of the history of the Bible. Uh, If you don't know, a lot of times the New Testament writers are in many ways pointing backwards, quoting and using the framework that was built in the Old Testament. And today's text is no different. It really does that in a deep way. And so we're going to start just by building a little bit of a foundation around how we can kind of come to grips with what Peter is now leading the churches in in the first century and actually what it means for us today. It does start in the garden. Don't freak out in the beginning. Don't worry. We're not going to be here all day. I know some of you are thinking I've got to get to my like isolated Mother's Day brunch. Don't worry. We're not going to be too long. But the story begins in the garden. Adam and proto-human in the garden. If you don't know the story, God creates proto-human in his image. And what a lot of people miss through this story is that proto-human, Adam and Eve, are called to co-rule with God. Like legit in the garden, they're to steward the earth. They've been given this cultural mandate and they're supposed to come alongside God and work with him in the garden just to see it flourish and to cultivate it with their lives and everything that they do. And if you know the story, that ends up being like a page or two. They fail to be obedient. And because of their rebellion, Yahweh really gives out these curses and and begins to exclaim to both man and woman and the serpent who deceived them that there would be curses. And these curses involve pain and childbearing. And I've been there four times. It's legit. It's real. And things like chauvinism, right? The image we get is that God says that he will rule over you. 
there's blood and sweat and tears and work. And ultimately, and it's not the greatest news in the world, the result of the curse is that you will die, that to dust you will return. You were made and formed in, out of the dust and to the, to the dust you will return. And it doesn't sound very good, obviously. I mean, a story that starts in rhythm and fusion and shalom, the beauty of the beginning of the story kind of unravels pretty quick. Yet through this debacle, there's a glimmer of hope. Even amongst the mess, God has a plan uh, to redeem the world. And the ho- it's interesting. The hope is that God would use a Messiah, so like an anointed one, somebody that would rise up. But God would also use a people to reclaim the whole earth, a Messiah and a people. And you feel this right away, like right as God divulges the curses, he also makes a proclamation that is this incredible proclamation of what he's going to do. It's actually in Genesis 3.15. Scholars call this the first gospel or the proto-euangelion, this first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent that someone is coming who will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's kind of this future vision that someone is coming. God had already, from from this very day of rebellion, God had a plan that someone was going to come and he was going to redeem the world and rid the world of evil. And so you have this future vision of a Messiah and a people. Then you get to Israel, the story of Israel. The scripture gives us a glimmer of hope that a Messiah would come. But it's interesting. God also planned that a people, right? crazy. A family would show God's light to the nations around him. So we don't have time for this to talk about it in detail, but God actually calls it a guy named Abraham just out of his sheer grace, calls it a guy named Abraham to be the father of this nation called Israel. And there's a couple really interesting claims that God kind of makes on this community. He says in Exodus 19, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember that in just a minute when we read what Peter has to write. Deuteronomy 14 says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be uh, a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's in Deuteronomy 14. And so there's this, you sense it, you kind of feel it, that in the Old Testament, Israel was this people to be a light to the nations. They were a priesthood. They were supposed to be these bridge builders to the world, and they were to be this holy community. Now the question is, how did that go? It had its ups and downs, right? It was like kind of all over the place in their story. There were times and moments where they were following Yahweh. And then there's obviously other moments where the whole, whole idea, even of the people of Israel really began to fall apart because of their decisions. Enters, so then enters Jesus, Jesus, after Israel's prophets had gone silent, a Jewish rabbi in Galilee named Jesus begins to proclaim this audacious claim that good the good news of the about the good news of the kingdom of God this this proclamation that this is good news and it's about the kingdom of God and Jesus ultimate hope is that those who would follow him would do what Israel was called to do just remember that Jesus had a hope for his followers that is, that this community that would follow him would do what Israel was called to do to love God and to love their neighbors with everything. It's called the great commandment. 
And so Jesus was the one who struck the head, you know, back to Genesis 3.15 in this proto-euangelion, this first gospel. Jesus was actually the one who struck the head of the adversary, the Satan, but instead of using military force, he came and we know the story is he laid down his life, defeating the Satan through death and resurrection. And after his resurrection, instead of staying in Jerusalem and kind of setting up shop and seeing his kingdom there, the the crazy audacious thing is, is he actually chose to leave earth and empower his followers to do the work of the kingdom, which would have absolutely blown the minds of his disciples at that time. With all that said, that's a bit of background, pretty quick, I know, but that helps lay the foundation now as Peter is writing to a bunch of Jesus followers throughout the empire. This is what his letters are, First and Second Peter. These letters are to go out to communities in the empire who feel, ultimately these communities feel like they're exiles. And these people have been persecuted and really have been pushed to the margins of their particular culture. With all that in mind, let's read the text together, right? No test there, I promise. Just listen to some of the language now and what Peter writes in what we just talked about. First Peter 2 verse 4, As you come to him, Peter says, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in... Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8, And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. Feel it? All right. You are a royal priesthood. Okay. All right. You are a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Boom. Now, the foundation we kind of built from the Old Testament, I hope in your bones you feel it. It just seems really clear here that the call for Israel in the Old Testament to be a light to the nations now is exactly the same call for the church in the first century and now in the moment we live. Ultimately, please stay with me because this is massive. The call is that the church would be a family that represents God to the world. The call is that this church that Peter is writing would be a a family that would be these representatives to the world. And I think actually a couple thousand years later, we pick this up and this is for us. You know, the idea of priests is really the idea of bridge builders. This is what Israel was called to be, was to be a light to the nation. And though they failed miserably at times, when we understand that we are the royal priesthood now, the idea is that we are the ones building the bridge to the world to show them God's love and light. If you haven't heard this, if if church has just kind of been a program or kind of a thing to do or something to check in with once in a while or maybe go once in a while now online, maybe it's just something to check in with once in a while online, I think we're actually missing it. The call here that Peter is placing on this community 
and these communities is unreal. It's life-changing. It's, it's really, it's reality-altering. You know, in the New Testament, we're actually left with three primary metaphors for the church. So the writers in the New Testament are trying to kind of sort out how to give pictures and ideas of what the church is supposed to be. And these three things are common. You probably know them if you've read the Bible. One is a temple, that the church is to be this new temple. We're bricks in this temple with Jesus being the cornerstone. An image that's often used as well is the image of a body, that the church is a body and that Jesus is the head of the body. And I think it's a beautiful way of, of again, putting uh, an image before us of what the church is to look like. It's interesting that that very image was used in other Roman contexts. And now uh, a writer like Paul would take it and put it on the church. And then, of course, the New Testament often refers to the church as family. Now, while temple and body may be a metaphor, I actually think that family is not a metaphor for the church. Family is a reality of the church. In the New Testament, the church actually became a surrogate family, especially with the framework of understanding that many that would have come to Jesus in the first century would have been shunned or excommunicated from their families especially with the differing religions in the empire, really what happened is the church became a a surrogate family for the community of people. And if we're honest, I think if you're honest with me, this grinds against our cultural moment, does it not? I mean, we live in a moment of authenticity and autonomy. And especially as Western people, we very much live in a moment where we don't really want people to tell us what to do. And yet in the first century, the church became the surrogate family for people. You know, it often, I often hear this off, roll off people's tongues. People will often say, I am the church. And I get what they mean when they say it, because certainly there's part of our identity as the people of God, where our identity becomes the church. But I'll also say in context of like what church actually meant back in the Bible, it's kind of an odd statement to say, I am the church. It's a little weird because ultimately the word church simply meant gathering. The Roman Senate used this word ecclesia or the word church, which we translate to church, and it simply meant a gathering of people together. And so when people say, I am the church, I always think there's part truths in that, but it's also a little odd. It would be odd for you and I to to declare that we are something like the wedding, or we are a basketball team, or we are the university graduation. We ultimately know that I'm not the university graduation. The university graduation is actually something I would be a part of. Being the church is actually, in its purest context, is being gathered together point is this. The point in all of this is that our identity as people who come to Jesus because of the resurrection is a gathered family. Our identity is a gathered family. This is what it means. You know, Joseph Hellerman, he's a great guy and he wrote a a fantastic book called When the Church Was a Family. I would say it's this week's recommended reading for sure. I really encourage people to read it. He makes three general assumptions about the church early on in the New Testament. One, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. The group always took priority over the individual in the early days of the church, and especially in first century Greco-Roman culture. Two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was their blood family. 
And so blood family ran deep for people in that particular context. And that needs to keep before us when we read kind of these texts, right? Just the foundation that's there. And then three, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was actually the bond between siblings. And that day, sibling bond was actually, it ran deeper than marriage bond, which is so interesting. With all that said, Hellerman says this, he says the Christian communities established by Peter, Paul, and others in the Roman Empire were strong group surrogate family units in which the good of the group actually took priority over the desires and aspiration of individual matters. And if you're feeling it, we live in a completely different world it's interesting that that world was a world where actually it was the strong group, the, the community together took priority over the individual. So oftentimes as a pastor guy, I'll hear people all the time say, I want to change. Like, I just want God to change my life. I want, I want to change. This is what Hellerman would say. He says this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. And listen to what he says. People who stay also grow. And you know, what we find in the Bible is actually a God who seems at least as concerned with the group, so me and you in relationship with our brothers and sisters in Jesus, as he is concerned with me as an individual and me in relationship with God on my own. There's as much concern from God in the scriptures and in the Bible about us as a community of people than just me and my solo Christian life. Again, Hellerman, I know, I'm just drawing from his work, but he says, God's intention is not to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue toward personal enlightenment. And I think we could, he could just drop the mic right there. You know, we cannot escape that the deepest form of worship is actually a relentless commitment to God's family. So often we want to separate these things. We want kind of our singular, individual relationship with God. But I actually think you can't separate those things. The deepest form of worship is a relentless commitment to your brothers and sisters within the community. And as Peter writes this community and says to them that you're this priesthood, you're, you're holy, it's in the context and idea that the community of Jesus is called to be a family together. Now, I know we're in a very interesting moment, and I promise down the road, I'm sure there will be some critiques of what Corona means for the future and for the church, even though I really don't know what the future looks like. I know that there's implications for the church as we move forward, and we'll get a chance at some point to talk about some of that. But it's just interesting, you know, as we... As I kind of watch, churches clamor to have an online presence. And I get it. We're in the same boat. We're online as well. I keep on thinking, in light of what Peter writes to the communities here, how temporary this is. And what I mean by that is, I'm so thankful for the means to do this, but the church, I just want to, I want to remind us today that the church is a family. And if the church is anything less than a family, then I want to remind us that it's counterfeit. 
It's counterfeit. What we read here today and what Peter is leading is actually really challenging because it challenges how we do things and how we think. You know, so often we've made church a performance with the stage and a few people on stage that we go and watch. And I actually think this is actually really foreign to the first century church. And I think it would be really foreign to Peter in the context of what he's writing here. He's encouraging this community together to be priests to the world. And we do certain things and we're doing stuff online here. I I get it. But just as I've been thinking through this, church is a family. And if, if we go any less than church being a family, then what we get is we get a counterfeit church. And I believe God wants to create in us, even in these moments and times, a longing, not just for God, though that's important, but a pure and genuine longing to be with each other because that's what we're called to be as a community. I just find it fascinating that this is in the lectionary for Eastertide because resurrection creates family. Resurrection creates a new humanity. And this is what Peter is leading the church into. And this is what we have to take away today. You and I have a new identity in Jesus and we are brought into a new family together. And so as we close this morning, here's what I want to do. The guys are going to come back in a second and they're going to lead us. And they've done a great job from their living rooms in this time. But I thought over the next few weeks, what I'd love to do is just give like a buffer of 30 seconds to a minute where you could reflect on a couple questions just before we sing again. One of those questions is, do you see the church as a family that represents God to the world? Are you, are you bought into this? Because I hope this morning would be something that would shape you to at least consider that church is not some sort of show or gig that we go to or even something that we tune into online. Do you see the church as a family that represents God in the world? And then the question is, how does this idea change our lives as Jesus followers? Would you take a second and just reflect on this with me for a moment?